Welcome to Comeback. This is episode 196. My guest today is Matt Keenan. Matt initially came to Vietnam 50 years ago from the Vietnam War and since returned in 2015, having been exposed to Agent Orange himself. We're going to discuss Vietnam, Agent Orange, his career and more today. Matt, welcome to Comeback. How are you today? I'm fine, Connor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Matt, just to start with, can we talk a little bit about your background? As in, I believe you're from New York. How did the situation arise where you came to Vietnam all those years ago? Well, uh, back in uh, 1968, actually before that, but 68 for me, because I was 18 years old, uh, we were subject to being uh, called into the military by the uh, United States government. Everyone, all males had to register for what they called the selective service system. And that was the system by which people were uh, called to be tested uh, for physical uh, capability. Also, they gave mental uh, tests to see if you qualified to be in the military service. So at that time, uh, the draft was uh, calling was very high because of the Vietnam War. You figure about 1965, the amount of men in Vietnam was considerably low. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but by 1968, it was a half a million Americans in Vietnam. So uh, they found that it was a little bit unfair uh, because the draft system seemed to uh, take in a lot of minorities. There seemed to be more Latino, uh, Hispanic, and Black uh, boys, not to say boys, because they were 18 years old, just out of high school, uh, being pulled into the military. So to make the system fairer, they decided to implement a draft lottery. So the uh, draft lottery meant that whosever number was selected based on their date of birth, you would uh, get assigned a certain number and be subjected to being drafted. And that's what happened to me. Because in 1969, I had draft. I was 19 years old. The number that was assigned to me was 118. 118 out of 365 numbers in the uh, days out of the year was quite low. Um, so I was subject to being drafted. And uh, lo and behold, in 1970, the war was still going on. Although they were decreasing the numbers, uh, they were in the process of bringing men home, but they still needed to replace guys. And uh, my number was called. Um, I didn't want to be drafted. Um, I didn't want to go to Vietnam. I didn't even want to go in the army or any military service for that matter. Um, but I wound up not being drafted. I enlisted for three years 
And the reason why I enlisted is because by enlisting, you had a choice of what your military specialty would be. So I chose uh, to be in the military police. But uh, once I got into the army and after further physical examination, they decided I wasn't, uh, I had had some medical problem uh, that they decided would disqualify me to be a military police officer. And I chose that because it was sort of, uh, I, I was studying criminology and I was studying police science. So I figured if I did that in the military, that would further my career options for the future, but also keep me out of combat because military police basically weren't in, uh, in combat. So they declined that. And they actually gave me a different military specialty, which was to work uh, as a personnel specialist. And basically that means you're gonna be working for uh, an administrative work for high command. And, and that's what happened. So I was, uh, I was drafted, but I opted to uh, join on my own, which also required an extra year of service. But for me, an extra year of service and being a non-combat role was much better. Uh, now, I was very surprised in 1971 because they were sending so many guys home from Vietnam it actually went from a half a million to 1971 to around maybe 100,000, 80,000 men. Um, and I was called to go. And that was in uh, September of 1971. Right, so that's a, long, that's a long story of the progression of uh, you know, me going into the military. Yeah, of course. And whilst you were here in Vietnam during that time, do you mind telling me more about how you found the entire experience? My experience of being in Vietnam? Yes, during that period. Yes, yes, of course. Well, the only thing we knew about Vietnam really was not so much about Vietnam history, uh, but more about uh, what we saw on television, uh, give you a little perspective. In 1962, uh, um, when they had the Cuban Missile Crisis, I was only 12 years old, and we so I learned from a very young age, at the age of 12, that there was a, a, a political rivalry going on with, uh, say, capitalism and communism. And at the age of 12, we were hiding under our desks out of fear that we would get hit by missiles, nuclear missiles uh, shot off from Cuba when Russia was trying to influence uh, Cuba. So at a very early age, uh, you know, we feared communism in the sense of uh, nuclear war. So by the time I was 18 years old, 19 years old, um, you know, the thing of coming to Vietnam was that, well, you were fighting this big uh, boogeyman, this big monster communism, and you had to stop the spread of it. So when I got to Vietnam, 
even though I didn't want to come, I had this uh, sort of upbringing, realistic upbringing, uh, that there was some purpose of being there. When I got to Vietnam, not knowing anything about the people itself uh, or their culture, uh, was a shock to me. Not so much a culture shock, but shocking environment because it went from one day being in the United States and then the next day you're being in Vietnam and there's a, a difference in climate. It's very, very hot and very humid, tropical. Um, and you're hearing the sounds of war. So for me, the first experience was is that hearing explosions, hearing helicopters, hearing jet fighters zooming overhead all the time. Helicopters always, you know, in the in the area in the sky near your sight and within your ears. Even to this day, I hear a helicopter or I hear a jet fly over, I immediately look up. And it's not so much as a, a flashback, but it's a, a memory of experience that constant noise, that constant sound. So that my initial time was uh, those first few days was getting adjusted to these new noises, which were also quite frightening to tell you the truth because now you knew you were not watching the war on television uh you know back in the comfort of your united states but you were actually in it and um so that that that's a big adjustment because now you're going from the feeling of security to the feeling of insecurity where you don't know if you're going to be alive the next day uh, you don't know when you go to sleep if you're going to wake up the next day. So that's a big adjustment. And, um, you know, then it's just dealing with counting every day that you live uh, to how many days you have left to go back home. And we had an expression back then is that when you got back, when you left Vietnam to go home, you were not just going home, you were going back to the world because we didn't consider Vietnam to be part of the world because it was so crazy that this could not be part of the world. So guys who were going home and women too, uh, thought of being Vietnam is not part of the world. And when you were leaving, you were going back to the world, wherever that may be. Yeah, I see. And once you had come back to the world, come back, how did you readjust then to civilian life where it isn't quite as hectic by any stretch as what you were used to in Vietnam? Yeah, well, that's funny. Just as quickly as... Uh, I'll just explain something. I had a the major role I had while I was in Vietnam was to work on what they call the gradual withdrawal of the American forces handing over uh, wartime responsibilities to the South Vietnamese army. So when I was in Vietnam and when I left, we were down to about 20,000 uh, troops, American troops in Vietnam, which was quite uh, a big difference from 
500,000 just two or three years before that. I was also a drug counselor. Drugs was a big problem in Vietnam. And um, I was, part of my job also was to uh, be a drug counselor, help guys who got addicted to uh, heroin while in Vietnam, help them get home drug free. So um, I actually felt, uh, I felt that I was doing good stuff by helping uh, withdraw troops from Vietnam and also by helping guys get drug free. So coming home was great, it was fantastic. Um, and you know, just like when you leave to go there and adjusting to that life of a war, you don't get any time to, uh, I guess, acclimate yourself or adjust. It's like one day you were in the war zone and when you get home, the next day you're home. There's no uh, debriefing. There's no, uh, you know, time period of you know people sitting down with you and saying, "Okay, Matt, you just came home uh, from the war. You know, you may be experiencing some of these things, and you know, this is how you should deal with it." So, no psychological uh, debriefing, so to say. I mean, they train you to go to war, but then they don't train you how to not be in war. Right, so you go home with a lot of these uh, feelings um, that you just have to deal with yourself over time to make that adjustment. Uh, and, and I said, even today, to this day, now I live in Vietnam now, right? So, you know, we, we'll get to that part. But, you know, when I was first home and for many years, uh, when I hear how I hear a helicopter, I immediately look up in the sky. When I hear a jet plane go overhead, you know, I look up at the sky because that, it's an automatic response for me uh, and it connects me to the wartime experience. Um, you know, I did actually be able to function fairly, fairly well when I got home. Uh, I always had, uh, you know, I always had these fears of, um, you know, the wartime experience because uh, it, it does it does affect you, you know, and it causes some types of uh, you know stress throughout your life uh, that come about in different ways. But um, you know, I was able to get a good education. Uh, you know, I got through college, although I did work um, in the beginning for number of years I worked in the actually I worked in the jails of the city of New York. I worked in the illegal division and uh, I worked on a place called Rikers Island, which is just as infamous and famous as Alcatraz. Uh, it's on the it's part of New York City. Uh, it has about 10 jails in it on it. And I worked in every one of them. And I worked uh, in uh, I did legal work um, for guys who were incarcerated uh, through Legal Aid Society, which was attorneys uh, representing inmates pending their trial. So I did that for a number of years and I also then went to school and uh, got a degree in political science and sociology. Uh, eventually I stopped working in jails. I worked for law firms as a paralegal. Um, 
oddly enough, by the age of 37, I went to law school and I became an attorney and uh, I worked for attorneys um, in New York City, it's a couple of law firms. I also had my own law office for a while. And um, eventually I uh, wound up working for businesses and uh, I managed a, a home improvement company involved with construction, uh, uh, refurbishing homes, and uh, also property management. Uh, I worked in, uh, you know, help manage some properties in New York. So I, I sort of got away from, I still was able to use the legal uh, background mm. and legal education I had, but I, ch I channeled it into other uh, directions. So I know it wasn't functioning basically as an attorney, but still using that experience. So I fared fairly well as far as, you know, professionally uh, and education-wise. Yeah, I see. And if we, I suppose, fast forward slightly, do you mind telling me about when you discovered, firstly, that you had cancer, and secondly, that it may have been influenced by exposure to Agent Orange? Yeah, well, in, um, I had I had a friend, my very close friend, who was in the uh, in Da Nang with me. That's where I served my time. If I didn't mention that, um, and he was in the Air Force, but I was in the Army, and uh, his name was Jimmy uh, Bevo Thompson. Bevo was his nickname, and he developed a cancer from Agent Orange. Uh, and he would tell me that, Matt, I should get, you know, go get checked out. He goes, because this stuff creeps up on you uh, later in life. Um, seemed like a lot of the Vietnam veterans uh, and also Australians and South Koreans who were here in Vietnam, that they were exposed to Agent Orange, which is the most toxic chemical ever created by man. It's a defoliant and it's to destroy vegetation. Uh, and that's what it did. And uh, we were living on top of it, not knowing that it would affect us in, in uh, very serious ways. So what happened is my friend Bebo, he got this cancer and uh, he was very active, a very strong guy. And he told me, he said, Matt, he goes, you better get checked out. He goes, make sure everything is okay. I did go, I was going to uh, the Veterans Administration Hospital at the time. Um, that was just for routine medical treatments. Uh, and then my, what they call the PSA score, um, that's a, a blood test, which um, determines whether or not you have the likelihood of having cancer. Well, my PSA score came up sort of high, much higher than it would be for most folks. Um, so they recommended that I get a uh, biopsy. And the biopsy came out positive that I had uh, a cancer. Now, what they do for Vietnam veterans is that they come up with a statistic that Vietnam veterans who are exposed to Agent Orange, it's 
presumptively caused by exposure to Agent Orange because the number of people who um, statistically, Vietnam veterans have a much higher instance of getting approximately 20 different illnesses on mostly cancers than the normal population. So my cancer was in that 20 list, uh, on that list of 20 illnesses. So it was from that day forward that I realized that uh, exposure to Agent Orange was, uh, you know, something that was most likely probably uh, presumptively caused by my time in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, my friend Bevo eventually died at the age of 68. Uh, and another important factor regarding age is that about 75% of the Vietnam veterans die before they reach the age of 70. Very low lifespan compared to the normal population. So that was in 2014 uh, that I was diagnosed. So I decided I wanted to go and learn about it, not from books, not from doctors, not from other veterans, even though I respect all that knowledge. Mm. I wanted to go to the Vietnamese people. I wanted to know what their experience was. I wanted to know how it affected them because they were living in it. I mean, I was, most Vietnam veterans from the United States uh, were only here for one year. And uh, Vietnamese people were here for their lifetime. So they had exposure not only from Agent Orange, which the technical chemical name is dioxin, they were exposed in their water and their food sources for the duration of their life. So I wanted to learn about that. So that's why I came back to Vietnam uh, in 2015, which for me, a personal journey, an educational journey to have a better understanding of what this is all about. And um, so I did, I decided I'd come back to Vietnam. And uh, my first trip was in early of, night of 2015. Okay. It was around March, April, May of 2015. Yeah. And what was your initial reaction like once once that you'd touched down in Vietnam again? Well, it was kind of a strange experience because this is a place that originally 50 years before I didn't want to ever go to. I mean, at that time, it was, two, it was 45 years. But um, so it was a little bit of a strange experience. It's not a place where I ever envisioned I would want to go back to. Um, you know, but for me, it was an educational journey. So I had, a, it wasn't like a vacation. My initial experience was in learning about it was to uh, do volunteer work in schools for children that were affected by Agent Orange. So this means is that they were either children or grandchildren of parents or grandparents that were exposed directly during the war, but because of their DNA, 
um, transferred the effects of Agent Orange to them. So they may not have been directly exposed to it, but their parents or grandparents were. And um, you know, I, I learned a lot about that and just working with these children who had all kinds of disabilities. Some, some of them were uh, manifested in a way that they had uh, you know, body, bodily deformants. One arm could be long, longer than the other. A leg could be shorter than the other. Maybe they were uh, paralyzed to some extent. Um, my best friend, Fun, uh, he was, he's only about three feet tall and so was his sister. Uh, but their father was uh, directly exposed to be uh, Agent Orange because his father was a truck driver for the North Vietnamese Army. It's very strange because now I'm good friends with Fun, and technically speaking, 50 years prior, I would have been his father's enemy. Yes. And, and now we're best friends. So just by hands-on observation, I saw that there was a, a big problem with people's uh, physical disabilities, uh, serious illnesses. I met uh, some, some people who never got out of bed in their whole lives because they're not capable of doing it and they need 24-hour care. Um, so I, I learned a lot about the devastation uh, that was caused by uh, Agent Orange. Yeah, I see. And the work you do today, do you mind telling yes. me, and I did watch the videos that you showed me kindly, um, do yes. you mind telling me exactly what you do in assisting children affected by Agent Orange? Yeah, sure. Uh, you, know, the, you know, after that first experience, um, I decided, uh, and, and part of that journey, that first visit, I came back to Da Nang, and I came back to Da Nang because that was the sentimental. My first month was really up in Hanoi. Um, but when I, I came to Da Nang for a couple of days, really just wanted to uh, go back to where I was 50 years or 48 years before. And um, I, I met some other people who worked in a daycare center in Da Nang that were, uh, people affected by Agent Orange, young people. And I was so, um, I was so captured by and, and enthused by the Vietnamese spirit of welcoming, uh, you know, welcoming back. Uh, one of my biggest fears was that they would, I'd be considered like, a, you know, the bad American, you know, the ugly American, the guy, you know, one of the guys who came back, <clears throat> but was also part of what caused all these problems. But it was totally opposite of that. I was welcomed, everybody felt, uh, you know, treated me very nicely, very respectfully, cordially, were very helpful in many respects. Um, and so what I did is when I left Da Nang in 2015 on that first visit, I decided I was gonna come back because I wanted to learn more and I wanted to help these kids in these care centers. So what I did is I kept on coming back. I kept coming back every year. I'd come back once or twice, uh, actually twice a year, 
And each visit was normally around 10 weeks, sometimes 12, depending on the time of year. Um, because I also had to get medical treatments back in New York. So I had to stagger my visits, go back and forth. Um, I have family in New York and friends. So I, you know, I couldn't, I didn't want to live here at that time. So I, I did both. I lived half my life in Vietnam and half it back in the United States. But what happened is, uh, you know, I, I was able to learn more and more about the effects of Agent Orange. And what I first initially did is I just wanted to come and be a help. I wanted to help the daycare center staff. I wanted to help them do their job uh, as far as taking care of the children. The daycare centers are a very safe place, safe to the extent that you know their parents or significant others can go to work and they can leave their children at a place that is safe uh, as, to, as opposed to being home alone or not going to work and having to care for them at home. So that was my initial uh, role, was just to be helpful in any way, capacity, any capacity uh, that was needed. So if the teachers needed help teaching, I would help teach. If they needed help, Matt, I gotta leave the classroom for a few minutes. Can you watch the children while I'm away? Yes, I can. If they needed help uh, playing sports, I would help them. Uh, I, I, I would participate in helping them play soccer or even basketball. We built a basketball hoop and we taught the kids how to play basketball. Sometimes there was dancing and we would help, uh, you know, I'd dance. I, I, There's one thing I could do. I can't sing and I can't play music, but I can dance. So, you know, I was gifted with that ability and had a lot of fun and still do helping the kids dance and, and have fun, uh, you know, with the music. And it got to the point where people would, I, I would even dress up as a clown and uh, have fun with the kids. And, you know, they would always look at me as like, you know, uh, the crazy man from New York, you know, what is he gonna do today to help us have fun and laugh? Um, over time, I met a lot of people on an international level. So we get a lot of visitors at the daycare center. We get visitors from Australia, New Zealand, from Japan, South Korea, Europe. We get visitors from the United States. Some of the universities and even high schools would send children, uh, students to the daycare centers but stay with themselves was an educational experience. They wanted to learn about it. The Canadian Navy, the uh, United States Navy came to the daycare centers and um, it gave me an opportunity as an English speaker to have an, a different role. I was able to communicate and explain to foreigners who didn't speak Vietnamese and only spoke English. I then went into a different role. I went to a role of um, how you would say, be a voice for the people who could not articulate or explain their circumstances. You know, to have a disabled person who ha doesn't have the ability to understand what is dioxin, what is Asian orange, why is it affecting me this way? They have no capability of understanding that, but I do, because I have been affected by it, but in a much different way has affected my ability to think or articulate or communicate. So I realized I had a higher role. I could still do what I was doing. 
to help the kids have fun, help the staff make their jobs easier, but I can also spread awareness about a very serious problem that is not going away. It's still here, it still exists, and it will still exist for years to come. And uh, people need to be aware of it so that number one, they never let anybody create such a dangerous chemical and use it again, and uh, also to get help uh, and assistance uh, to keep these uh, uh, daycare centers operating and help people who can't even get to the daycare centers who are homebound, help those families as well, uh, you know, well into the future uh, to provide some assistance to make their lives a little easier, right? I see it. It's still astonishing that even though the war finished, say, 40, 50 years ago, the effects are still very much there, and that's part of the work that you're involved in. Yes. Yes. I, I sometimes think of it like, you know, the, you know, the atom bomb was very serious. They should probably never use them again. Uh, you know, but the bomb goes off and it has fallout, okay? Obviously, the radiation does cause problems, but the radiation will eventually dissipate and go away. However, this is like an atom bomb in a much different way, right? You have the fallout, and the fallout doesn't go away uh, because it gets involved in, inside people's bodies, and then it's passed on to generation to generation to generation. I think we're right now up to the third, uh, even getting into the fourth generation of people that are affected by uh, this chemical. Yeah. Even though they were never directly exposed to it, their parents or grandparents were. Yeah, I see. And with that, are there any favorite aspects for you about the work that you do? Are there any highlights? Well, there's a, there, I came up with a, um, uh, an expression, um, but that me, it's it's, uh, it's an endearing engagement, uh, and I and I say because it brings joy. Uh, when I say endearing engagement, I mean that you know both sides are engaged in you know the work that I do. I mean the, the children are engaged in being receptive what I bring to them, and the same token. I'm engaged with what they bring to me. Uh, they bring me a lot of joy. So it's almost a two-way street. I try to bring joy to them, and they bring joy to me. And to me, that's great, great satisfaction. And also, you know, when I when I see that I can be helpful in, uh, for instance, the kids needed a bus. They need they would they had a, a this crappy old van. 12 people van, 12 person van, and they were going to the daycare center in this van, but they would put 25 people in it. And, and on hot days in Vietnam, when it gets hot in the summer, the real field temperatures could be 115 degrees. You pile 50, 25 bodies in a small van, number one, it's dangerous. And um, it's, not, uh, it's not safe and comfortable. Um, so I was able to work on a fundraiser to get a safe bus for kids. And uh, 
thankfully, uh, with the help of some people and donations, and with the Japanese embassy um, uh, and the ambassador of Japan, uh, we were able to get a 25-seat bus, which they now still use today. It's only three years old, so it's a relatively new bus. But now they can get to schools, number one, safe, and also um, more comfortable than what they were using for years. It was it bringing tears to your eyes to see them packed into this van. Um, so, you know, it's things like that that... Uh, I get a lot of satisfaction knowing I can help them in multi-dimensional ways that I never dreamed of. I didn't plan this, it just happened. Um, so, you know, I'm always engaged with some activities like that as far as, uh, you know, getting funds or helping get donations, uh, even through the local community, we get volunteers. Most of them are from, uh, you know, uh, young people who are here as teachers, um, but they also have other abilities like uh, they're musicians and they, they're artists. And uh, I've met these different uh, people through an organization called the Nango, uh, a volunteer organization, and been able to bring them to the daycare centers and share their talents, whether it's singing, dancing, uh, arts and crafts. Um, so that's been a, a, another addition, an extension of you know my original intentions. Without planning, these things just seem to unfold naturally. Uh, so it, it's a great blessing for me to know that I can be helpful, in, in, you know, in all these different little ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. I see and. Obviously, you've been to Vietnam twice, both at very different points in history and in very yes. different capacities. How yes. would you describe what makes Vietnam such a special country? Well, uh, I learned that the, the, the Vietnamese people are very creative. They're very resilient. You got to understand them. They had to overcome the French who were here for more than a hundred years, uh, who used Vietnam as basically a colony uh, and, and controlled it. Uh, and then they, uh, during World War II, they had Japan come in. Japan wanted to rule all of Asia. Uh, that obviously uh, stopped in 1945. Ho Chi Minh wanted to declare that they were independent and wanted to have one unified Vietnam. But after World War II and Japan left, the French came back. And the Vietnamese, after 10 years in 1955, they uh, fought the French and the French gave up and the French left. But then what happened? The United States came. When the United States, the biggest military in the world, they came here from 1961 to 1975, you know, the United States gave up. And uh, even in years later, China tried to come back in 1985 and Vietnamese pushed them out. So the, it's one thing, they're very, very determined, very resilient, and they're very resourceful. You, if, 
there's things that I see Vietnamese people do is um, they may not have a ladder, but they may need to do something. And they will stack up chairs. They'll put chairs on top of tables and they'll, they'll climb on the table and they'll top on, on top of the chair, you know, to reach to something, uh, you know, that we ordinarily would say, would think of doing it that way. Um, I myself in my house, I had to put on a new roof on my house. My house is three stories high. And they had these, third, uh, I would say 20 foot long sheet, uh, sheet metal um, that they had to get up to the roof. And I'm saying, how are they gonna get this sheet metal up to the roof? Well, they had one guy hook a, put a hook on the end of the sheet metal and they had another guy up on the roof and they, by a rope, they just pulled up each sheet of sheet metal until it got up to the roof. Um, you know, and it very, very hard working, especially, uh, I'd say the, the woman, the older woman worked very, very hard. Uh, and as I said, they're very resourceful. I mean, looking in the, the rice paddies, they, you know, that's not easy work. And besides rice paddies, people don't know this. Vietnam is the second largest coffee producer in the world. And, you know, you do that by hard work. So, and the, their hard work, being resilient, being resourceful. And the most, the biggest thing for me is their ability to forgive. They don't forget the past. But they don't let the capacity a burden to them. Don't let it be something that weighs them down. So they're able to overcome and say, forgive Americans and now be very friendly with America. The United States and Vietnam have a very good, healthy partnership working together for a better future. Um, so that, that impressed me a great deal is that ability to want to cooperate and work together. One, one example of this is a man who I work with. He's the president of the Da Nang Association for Victims of Asian Orange. They run the daycare centers. His name is Tonam. Mr. Tonam, when he was a teenager, was a courier transferring information from town to town during the Vietnam War. He was a teenager. I now, who worked for the United States military at the same time, was his enemy, okay? Mm. I was his enemy, he was my enemy. And now we work together hand in hand, helping the kids with problems with Agent Orange. So that this is kind of evidence uh, to support, you know, what I was saying, you know, personally for me. And I see it all the time in many different ways. Absolutely. And coming to the end of the conversation, Matt, you've obviously settled in Da Nang, Vietnam. Now, what are yes. the aims for the future? What would you like to achieve going forward in the work you do? Well, it was never my intention to uh, be living in Vietnam. Um, but what happened, I realized that I have a very good life in Vietnam. And I decided last year, uh, in the year uh, 
2020 that I would live in Vietnam and New York would be, or the United States would be the place I would go to visit, visit to see doctors, visit to see family, but I would live in Vietnam. And I happened to meet a very lovely uh, lady. Her name is Lana. Lana is the cousin of the uh, manager of a restaurant called The Happy Heart, whose name is Mimosa. So Mimosa introduced me uh, to her cousin and I got married. So now I live in Vietnam and I have a Vietnamese wife and I live in a Vietnamese community. And my goal really is to continue what I'm doing. Um, you know, I know it's been a wonderful journey. I know there are things that I can't foresee that are going to happen, but I imagine, um, based on what's happened in the last six years, that it will only be good stuff. Um, because my intentions are, are good. Uh, you know, there's got, there's got to be in life over time. You know, you have honesty of intent and honesty of purpose. And when you have those two things working together, the outcomes are going to be good. So what I'm going to do is continue to do what I'm doing. My wife, my wife Lana, helped support me. She does a lot of work to help me uh, achieve things I want to do uh, as far as getting people to either donate uh, money, even sometimes just uh, donate food. One place she had, we had some friends, they donated a washing machine because they were doing their wash by hand. And uh, we realized, well, if we get them a washing machine. My wife helps me do that. Her cousin Mimosa owns a restaurant. So she's able to help out doing things. Last year, she uh, brought all the kids uh, new uniform shirts so when they go to social activities in the public, they all have a nice shirt that uh, looks like they're unified as a group. It's also good to identify them because if you bring a group of kids, like sometimes it could be 60 to some type of event, they're wearing all the same color. It's easier to spot them and, and um, you know, supervise them properly. So, you know, there's so many things that happen naturally over time and that's what i look forward to you know? uh just keep doing what i'm doing trying to be uh bring a happy face um trying to make people who live in difficult situations to make their lives a little bit easier excellent matt thank you very much for your time today hugely appreciated and the very best of luck for the future Okay, Colin, thank you very much. Uh, it was a uh, pleasure to speak to you and to share my experience. And uh, if anybody in your audience uh, would like to learn more about it, uh, my Facebook name is Matthew C.F. Keenan, the only one on Facebook, and also the Da Nang Association for Victims of Agent Orange. That's the organization I do most of my work with, so they can look that up as well, okay? And uh, they may find a way that they themselves would like to help or learn more, which what's, that's what it's all about, sharing information, spreading awareness. So I appreciate the time that you've given me to uh, you know, tell my story. 
Excellent. Cheers, Matt.